The views and content expressed on the following program are provided solely for informational and entertainment purposes. They do not constitute legal advice. A podcast is not a substitute for retaining a competent, licensed attorney to advise you on your specific legal situation. How's it going, everybody? Welcome to the show. It is time for Break the Business, where we empower indie creators and have some fun along the way. I'm Ryan Carella, and it is a pleasure to have you here this week. It really is a pleasure. We got ourselves a show and a half this week. Well, not literally a show and a half. It's actually going to be the normal length of time of the show because radio is very strict about this, and we got to keep our serious XM overlords happy. But qualitatively, we have a show and a half this week. It's going to be a fabulous one. Our guest in the next segment, Ruby Greenberg, is going to be joining us. Indie folk singer-songwriter. She's got a new song out. It's called Roses. It's a delight. We're going to talk to her all about it. She's going to have some great advice for indie creators like you. It's going to be an absolute treat. Speaking of people that we love to have around because they are fonts of information about giving advice to indie singer-songwriters, Let's go ahead and bring out our co-host this week, one of our favorites, Katie Zaccardi, joining us. Hey, Katie. Hello, hello, hello. Artist, coach, TikToker. You can find out more about her by <laughs> going to katiezaccardi.com, and I very much encourage the people out there to do so. How you been? I'm, I've been good. I've been there. I've been in, to New York and back and just loving the summer weather, trying to live it up, and uh, yeah, I've been good. Oh, goodness gracious. New York in June. Let me tell you, New York in June, you will. I've been, you know, I lived in New York for three years and New York in June will trick you into thinking like I can live in New York year round. Yeah. Yeah. Like the first time. Yeah. As soon as July hits, it gets so humid. You want to leave immediately. Oh, but June in New York, June in New York, the first time you can bike all the way through Central Park and it's like 70 degrees and it's beautiful. You have a picnic and you're like, oh, yeah, I could do New York. I'm a New Yorker. And then July hits and it's humid as hell. Then November hits. Yep. And you need to get the F out of there. But oh, you were there June in New York. I'm so envious. Yeah, it was fun. (laughs) Yeah, absolute blast. Katie, I'd like for you to do something with me. All right. I want you to join me start off things this week to celebrate greatness. That's what I want to do uh, here with you this week. Celebrate greatness. Really at break the business. What are we doing? If we're not trying to encourage greatness in the indie creators out there, trying to make us all the best versions of ourselves. But sometimes we see greatness outside of the entertainment industry. Sometimes we see it in great intellectual and athletic feats And I got to say, before we get to the music and the entertainment stuff this week, Katie, I have to tell you, I have just been enraptured by a 90-second audio clip of a eighth grader from San Antonio, Texas. Her name is Harini Logan, who just won the National Spelling Bee and gave us a 90-second clip that I might submit to you in that moment Nobody in the world has ever been better at anything in the world than Harini Logan was at spelling in those 90 seconds. So I want to lay this out for you, okay? 
So normally the spelling bee, I don't know if you ever did spelling bees when you were in school. Uh, I did mostly painful memories, but you stand <laughs> up there with like 10 kids. You, you do like you, you rotate around trying to spell words. If you get a word wrong eh, you sit down, you go to the next kid and then whoever's left standing wins. And that's what they tried to do with this spelling bee. But apparently there were two kids that were just so damn good at spelling that they were just <laughs> like, you know what? This isn't working anymore. So instead of just the back and forth spelling, we're doing a lightning round. And who doesn't love a good lightning round? Um, and so what they did was they got both kids up there and they just like, just rapid fire threw a bunch of words at them. Words that I've been told are English, but I've never heard any of them before. <laughs> and whichever oh one of them could spell the most words correctly in 90 seconds would win the spelling bee. And we get treated, and Lauren's going to put the clip up here in a second, to Harini Logan spelling 21 of the most incomprehensible words I've ever heard correctly in 90 seconds. Show us the clip here, Lauren. Your first word is spielbone. S-P-E-A-L-B-O-N-E. Phreatophyte. T-H-R-E-A-T-O-P-H-Y-T-E. Gaidiang. G-A-Y-D-I-A-N-G. Parison. P-A-R-I-S-O-N. Eximer. E-X-E-I-M-E-R. Tokia, Tokia. T-O-Q-U-I-L-L-A. Glocus. G-L-O-C-H-I-S. Apolemant. E-P-A-U-L-E-M-E-N-T. Kara. C-H-A-R-A. Mayutic, Mayutic. M-A-I-E-U-T-I-C. Calico right. I think I think we got this here. Teosinti. Am I crazy, Katie, in thinking that that is the peak of human achievement? Nobody uh, in the world yeah. has ever done anything on camera as impressive as whatever the heck that was. I don't even know if I could say the letters that fast if it was right in front of me, let alone figure out how to actually spell it and say it that fast. That is so I'm, impressive. I'm pretty sure if you gave me 21 one-syllable words, cat, dog, <laughs> chair... I would get one of the 21 wrong if I had to say them that fast just because I would like stumble or stutter. Yeah, yeah. She, she wasn't even breaking a sweat. No. She was just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is typical. She looked bored. <laughs> she honestly <laughs> like, just like She might have yawned halfway through that. Like if we kept the <laughs> clip going, I think there's a yawn in there. Just, I mean, so, so incredible. And I, I, I'm telling you, I, I watched the clip like over and over. Like it's... Like to me, like as as a as a Miami as a Miami Heat fan, like I watch Ray Allen's game six three pointer to tie the NBA finals and save the Miami Heat season. It's like one of the most iconic sports clips in Miami history. And like I'll watch I, I've watched that clip like at least once a month for the last 10 years. And this might be my new Ray Allen three pointer <laughs> clip. It's I mean, forget about like an intellectual achievement. As an athletic achievement, it's impressive. Yeah. That's true. It literally is a sport. Like, <laughs> yeah. So thank you, Katie, for celebrating that excellence with me uh, before we get into the music topics. And I'm excited for the music topic I have for you. Whenever I come across something nifty on TikTok, I always file it away and I wait for a Katie Zaccardi episode because I want to <laughs> have you share in this uh, TikTok enjoyment with me. And one of the things I like the most about TikTok is how it can take an artist maybe you've never heard of and take a song you've never heard of. And if an artist can create some cool videos the right way in the pre-release up to a song, 
they can make that song go viral. I'm sure you have many uh, experiences with that when you check out the platform, right? Yes, I do. And I love it. <laughs> yeah, it's and to me, the the most recent example of this that really put a smile on my face. And I want to I don't know if you've heard this song yet. So I want to like bring it to your attention so that you can become as obsessed with it as I am. The artist's name is Nobody Likes You, Pat, which is already like a great name. I love that. Please. Like right to the top of the charts right there because of how hilarious that name is. He's a Tennessee-based indie artist. And he put out a song. It just came out like two days ago as we record this called Things I Wish You Said. Really heartfelt, powerful ballad about his complicated relationship with his father. And he had a pretty interesting way to build buzz around the track uh, in the lead up to it coming out. So he spent about a, a, a month or so just building buzz around the track before he put it out. And one of the things that he did, which I think is a great thing for any indie creator to learn, is one of the ways that he highlighted the, to promote his music was to give people a window into a small part of the production process for that song using TikTok videos. And what he did was the chorus of the song has a very almost inaudible vocal part where he hits this ridiculously high note. Like... As in, it would make your dog bark if I if I played it. Like, <laughs> if I went into my falsettoiest of falsetto, I could not hit this note. You might not be able to hit this note if you went into the, <laughs> your falsetto. And when you're actually listening to the track, it's almost inaudible. It kind of just sort of accents the chorus. But he decided to make a TikTok video of him recording that stupidly high note to and it, and you know to like make people get interested in the song. Lauren, do you have the clip of this cuz I want us all to like enjoy this crazy high note he hits. <laughs> so the caption of the video reads when you just it's him in the recording studio hitting that high note and it goes it's him going when you just got to try one more dumb idea <laughs> and the video went viral because why wouldn't it on tiktok that's amazing yeah. hearing somebody yeah. hit that high note over three hundred thousand views tens of thousands of likes and it helped get people excited around the song it just got, it got people chatting about the song every time he put out another video people were just like when are you gonna put out that song where you hit the high note uh, and he built yeah. buzz with, by giving folks a window into his creative process uh you gotta love that stuff right i love that first of all that was also a sport and he also looked <laughs> bored slash amused like you have to watch the video Obviously, if you're listening to this, you didn't see it, but like go watch the video because I love how he just looks to the people like in the booth or on the other side of the booth and is just like, haha, I just did that as he <laughs> continues to sing. That's so what he did. That is my favorite part. Second thing is, I have not heard this before. And this is the other thing that I love about TikTok is that uh, there's just so much potential. Like, if you're an artist listening right now and you want to grow, uh, this viral video. And there's so many more viral videos out there and people who have huge audiences who I have never seen on my For You page. Why is that important? Because it, the the listenership or the viewership on TikTok is like literally endless. <laughs> you have so much potential to go viral and get so many views and reach a ton of people. And I I just, I love that. I love it. And I, and I suppose the advice to impart in it is that if 
you know, and we, we spoke about this with Elisa as the co-host, I think it was either a week or two ago, where we were saying that, like, you can't manufacture a viral moment. In a lot of yeah. the ways, it just happens. And it's almost as if the more that you try to make something viral, the more that the audience, like, realizes what you're doing and then hates totally. you for it. Totally. But the one thing you can't do if you're trying to make that viral moment happen is to not even try. Like if you're tweet, if you're treating TikTok as just like a promotional vehicle where it's, if he just put out a bunch of videos where he's like, download my song, download yeah. my song, download yeah. my song, it'd be crickets. But he found an interesting way to highlight a fascinating part of his song, give people a window into his process. And people love that authenticity and it made it go viral. Yes. And I think it's really interesting too that you brought this up today because just a couple days ago I posted a TikTok where I was talking about how uh musicians need to stop posting content speaking to other musicians I see this all the time on TikTok where musicians are like how I recorded this or hey fellow musicians do you experience this thing too and I totally get that creating community is important I think that there's still a way to do that on the app and beyond the app that's effective without making it your whole platform because it's really important as a musician to speak to your ideal fan and who that fan is. But people sometimes get confused because they're like, well, I want to show behind the scenes. So like, where's the line of it being a behind the scenes and interesting versus like tutorial E because what you don't want to do is post your creative process in such a way that's like so specific or techie or really for other musicians that it goes straight up over the heads of your ideal fan. And I feel like what he did here was, that perfect line. Like it's interesting, no matter who you are, whether you're actually a musician or you're just a fan of music, it's impressive. It's interesting. It gives us a behind the scenes without it being um, exclusive to only people who understand music. That's exact. It's the ultimate in accessibility, right? If it's a, like, obviously musicians, people who have a background in music or a background in production are going to appreciate that even though it's inside ba- like it's inside baseball for them like wow yeah a singer would know that's an objectively hard note to hit yeah. a producer would appreciate wow it's cool how they had they recorded that note and then sort of buried it within the chorus to make it like just serve as an accent rather than to overpower the track and meanwhile like lay fans can appreciate it too because they just go wow that's a high note that's pretty literally cool. <laughs> they're like wow that is cool <laughs> yeah Although the funniest thing about it was even though in the final track that little vocal piece is, is buried, it's very low in volume, there were a bunch of people that were commenting saying, come on, release a version where the high note is that loud at the because <laughs> people became obsessed with it. <laughs> I oh that's just brilliant marketing. And that's exactly so what smart. you want is people to be begging you to release something. I'm so happy for this guy that he got that and he deserves it because he seems very, very talented. Love it. Well, whether it's TikTok or not. There, whether using any platform, it always pays to let your fans get a little window into your process, let them feel like they're part of the experience, take them on the journey. And what a great example of it here. All right. One more story before we bring in Ruby Greenberg, who we're excited to chat with here in the next segment. I want to talk to you about uh, something that I've spent a lot of time on this show lamenting. Uh, I feel like I can't go like one month's worth of shows without getting angry about this at least once. I'm always lamenting this recent onslaught of garbage copyright lawsuits that are being thrown against musicians and singer-songwriters. It started with the Blurred line suit, you know, a case that if I were the judge and jury in that case, I would not say that Robin Thicke 
and Pharrell infringed on Marvin Gaye's copyright, not because the two songs you know don't have maybe some similar elements, but just that we don't want to live in a world where having a similar groove constitutes copyright infringement because that can stifle future creativity. But I understand that the jury saw it differently there, and Marvin Gaye's estate got $5.3 million. What that has done since then, and particularly in the last few weeks and months, is open the floodgates to a lot of even more ridiculous lawsuits. A few months ago, we talked about a lawsuit involving Taylor Swift, mm-hmm. where uh, in that case, a judge allowed a case or allow a copyright infringement case against Taylor Swift to go to jury. So it got past summary judgment where the only similarity between Taylor Swift's song, shake it off. And this other person's song was that they both used the muse, the, the phrase haters going to hate and players going to play or play is going to play. I should say um, <laughs> no other similarities. And you know, other than these two very common pieces of street slang that certainly Taylor Swift didn't invent. And probably the person who wrote that song originally didn't invent, but you know, a judge in overabundance of caution is letting it go to trial, which is going to be expensive for Taylor Swift and is going to, you know, and even though Taylor Swift can afford it, that has future stifling effect on the creativity of others, because now everybody's afraid of being the next Taylor Swift uh, in a bad way, of course, or being the next uh, Robin Thicke, or just being on the wrong end of one of these lawsuits. And I was saying, when that Taylor Swift case came down, that one day, in the near future, we would get a copyright lawsuit that was so colossally dumb, so (laughs) devoid of any jurisprudential integrity, that we would all just throw up our hands and say, what the hell are we doing? And Katie, I am telling you, that moment has arrived. We yes. are here. It has. It has. Have you heard about this case? I read the article you sent me, and I was a p- jaw on the floor yeah. out of stupidity for what I was witnessing. It's we so are stupid. <laughs> we are in copyright hell. Let me catch the viewers and listeners up. On June third. Lawyers representing musician Andy Stone, who uh, people much older than you and I might know as Vince Vance uh, from Vince Vance and the Valiants, a 1970s novelty group, sued the lawyers for this guy, sued Mariah Carey, another one of my like beloved people that I just don't like getting sued because they mean so much to me, (laughs) sued Mariah Carey and Sony for copyright infringement, alleging that her 1994 iconic Christmas song that we all know and love. All I want for Christmas is you. The allegation is that that song is in fact a ripoff of Vince Vance's 1990 song of the same name. But here's the thing, viewers and listeners, other than the title, which both songs share, these two songs have zero in common. Bubkiss, no similar musical elements, no similar lyrical elements not even like a haters gonna hate throw in there and never mind that both of the songs are 20 freaking years old and vince vance never thought to sue mariah carey before that's what None i thought that. too it's like yeah. why are you choosing now as your moment to do this exactly <laughs> like this song sense. we've been playing this song like from november to january in every department store <laughs> For 20 years, and now you decide, oh, I should probably sue Mariah Carey. <laughs> and none of that has stopped the lawyers representing Vince Vance 
from suing for deep breath $20 million. <laughs> As I noted before, for comparison, the Blurred Lines jury verdict, which was for a song that had come out recently when the case was filed, the song was a massive hit at the time, the verdict, and, and, and was a much more clear case of infringement, even though I don't even think that one was infringement, but certainly a stronger case than this one. The verdict in that case was only $5.3 million. So they want four times as more. Oh for God. this song. That's insane. What the hell are we doing? Let me tell you, I've been mad about this since the Olivia Rodrigo stuff happened. Did you ever talk about that on the podcast? I can't remember. We did. That was like another one that I got angry about. I was furious. The the um, good for you and Paramore thing, like, I, it just enraged me because just like you said, it's like similar grooves being pitted against each other. I don't like it. But this is just... This this just seems like they're trying to make a quick buck and they're going to do anything that they can think of to do it. Because the if I if I if this had any legal standing, I would just go and write a song now that had every possible word and phrase in it and then sue whoever whichever big artist <laughs> creates a song with the same phrases in it. And that's basically what they're doing here. So maybe I will do that and maybe I'll win and I'll get rich, but we'll see. Oh, and by the way, like never mind the fact that the only similarity between the two songs, the title is a title that is shared by like a hundred other songs. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> like, if, if this winds up being like a lawsuit, then like all of these songs like are going to like form a class action and sue whatever the last song that was titled all I want for Christmas is you yeah. and make that person pay <laughs> 20 million dollars and i'm going to say the same thing in this case that i said about the taylor swift case or that i would bring up in the olivia rodrigo case though it is annoying for taylor swift and mariah carey and olivia rodrigo to deal with these lawsuits i'm not crying for them they have money they have lawyers they have resources they can handle it who i'm worried about are the people who don't have these things the people who um, are going to, you know, are, are going to get threatened with one of these lawsuits and then give up a piece of their copyright in the suit to avoid a, or in their song to avoid a lawsuit like Olivia Rodrigo did. Yeah. Or when they try to get errors and omissions insurance or, you know, copyright infringement insurance, basically, the rates are so high because of all these bull bleep lawsuits that. The a, a regular indie artist off the street can't afford to get insurance against this yeah. because of how easy these cases are coming in. So, though it is the the big stories like the Mariah Carey's and the Taylor Swift's that make the news, it's the indie artists that I that work with that I'm worried about that are ultimately suffering from this. And unless there is a huge sea change in the law, whether it's you know, some appellate court or the Supreme Court coming down and changing the doctrine here, or if it's Congress stepping in and changing the law here, something needs to be done because the current state of affairs is going to have a bad effect on future creativity, where future songwriters are going to constantly be looking over their shoulder and saying, oh, goodness, this song that I just wrote, am I sure, am I positive that I, that, you know, some backbeat from some song I listened to when I was a little kid isn't stuck in my head or God forbid it, you know, I'm using a song that has a similar chord progression, like good yeah. for you did with misery business and Paramore, or I'm going to use a common piece of street slang that another song used, or in the case of this, 
that two titles are the same and some lawyer who really doesn't know what they're doing is going to annoy me with a lawsuit that maybe I can make that I'm going to make go away. Like this case, if there ever was a case that's going to get just knocked down on a motion to dismiss and the lawyers who filed it might even face some sanction for this because of how ridiculous this case is, it still wastes time. It still costs money. You still have to pay these lawyers to file the motion to dismiss. And all of that money makes insurance companies go, there's a higher risk here. We're going to charge higher premiums for E&O insurance. That stinks to me. Yeah. And I feel like we, as a society, have a responsibility to, like, in this case, maybe not as much, but in general, again, especially when the Olivia, Olivia Rodrigo stuff was happening, I feel like I saw so many people on TikTok who had no clue what they were talking about saying that it was copied and basically just giving all of this fuel for potential lawsuits or potential problems. And I don't think that they realized number one, that they're wrong, but number two, the damage that they could be doing, you know, with everything that you just said, like all of the effects that you just said that make it so much harder for indie artists. And I don't know, I don't know what the solution to that is. Maybe just more education but like we've got to do what we can and make sure we're not making it harder for indie artists because it's already hard enough. And why are all these TikTokers narking on Indi- uh, on uh, Olivia Rodrigo? What do you gain from know. that? I don't know. That's what that drove me nuts because I'm like, what? It, what are you doing? And what do you think's gonna happen? By I think it was just because vi- vi- videos kept going viral. So if they see, oh, somebody else is going viral for talking about how the two of these songs sound similar. I'm going to make a similar video that will go viral so I can have my viral moment. So then all of a sudden you had a bunch of videos talking about it. And like, did they sound kind of similar and have similar vibes? Yes. But I feel like it was that momentum of people who were just saying that over and over and over again, that made it so that they couldn't not address it. Like it had to be addressed. And then I don't know. I just feel like it it was a bad start to people being really, really inflexible about the fact that, you know, there's only a certain amount of notes and rhythms that you can do and like stuff's going to repeat or sound similar sometimes. And we can be okay with that. It doesn't mean that someone's like intellectual property and art is being stolen just because something sounds kind of similar. Like we need to make a distinction as a music culture between stealing somebody's work Yes. And progressing from the art that came before you, 100%. which is what we are, you know, that's like, that's a, that's a feature, not a bug of art. Everything that has come today was inspired by the things that came before it. And if we make it too difficult to be inspired by the things that came before it, it's going to hurt the art of today. And as you, as you aptly noted, like music is particularly vulnerable to this because there is a limited universe of elements to borrow from. There's only so many, was it 13 notes, 12 notes? I always forget. It's 12 notes. I believe. Can I I I get a thumbs up on this? Like how many (laughs) notes in the chromatic scale? Maybe Ruby Greenberg who's in the waiting room knows this. I think it's 12. I think it's 12 tones. Hard to believe I actually took AP music theory at one point. Yes, nailed it. All right. I, I just, well, I think I, I'm playing the piano in my head. But I could be wrong. Still got it. All right. Yeah. There's only so many notes. And when you're playing something, and here's a little bit more of it. I feel AP like I music got it theory. wrong, though. 
No, no, it's 12. Come on. I'm going to Google it. Can somebody research this? Lauren, give me a thumbs up. Is it 12? To... Anyway, while we're researching this, um, in addition, there isn't really 12 notes because in any musical key, there's only... 12. Yes! All right. <laughs> Honest the to God, that was th that was like the most horrifying 30 seconds of my life. Because like, you know, I know that musicians listen to this. And if I was wrong, they're all going to be like, oh, my God. Was this guy <laughs> notes the chromatic scale. Anyway, it's a little late. We had a moment. It's fine. It's right. <laughs> but it's not even really 12 notes, though, because when a yeah. song is played in a certain key, only some of those notes actually sound good in that key. If you're playing a song in C major, you don't get 12 notes, you get C, D, E, F, G, A, B. Mm -hmm. And and within a certain, and then certain chord progressions sound good next to each other. You know, one, six, five, four is in a billion songs because it sounds good together because it makes sense harmonically. And so when there are certain kind of norms in music and norms of what makes a pop song good, if you start calling those norms copyright infringement, you're hurting future creators. And not just creatively, but again, financially. Because when a guy like me has to go to my client's uh, E&O insurance company to get an insurance policy against this, it becomes cost prohibitive. My clients can't afford this insurance anymore because of all these ridiculous lawsuits getting thrown at Mariah Carey. Yeah, and that is not fair. No. That is not fair. Well, I uh, I hope that I'm hoping that this is a tipping point, right? Because this is like in every other lawsuit that's come down the pike, even like when it's, you know, Olivia Rodrigo, which wasn't a lawsuit. But anytime we get one of these copyright yeah. controversies, yeah. I'm the one who always goes, I disagree, but at least I get the argument. Yeah. This is the first one, this Mariah Carey case where I can go. Yeah. There's nothing. This is completely ridiculous. And I'm hoping that collectively as a music culture and as a legal culture, we all go, this is ridiculous. And this becomes the turning point where we finally fix this nonsense and we stop hurting indie creators or else our, our music's going to start really being terrible pretty soon. What will you do, Ryan, if this gets traction and it moves forward in any type of way? Well, I'm going to do what's already happening in the music industry, and we're all just going to start like going back and finding old music to play again. Like That's why uh, that Kate Bush song is like the biggest yeah. hit ever now. Yeah, um, I love that. Oh Another my God. TikTok viral hit. I love, yeah. Like, <laughs> it's, it's one of my favorite things about TikTok. I love that Kate Bush is getting another lap around the track. This is yes. fantastic. <laughs> There's so much love about TikTok. All right, let's take a quick break. We're going to bring in our guest, Ruby Greenberg, coming up right after this here on Break the Business. Corella here. I hope you're enjoying the show and I hope that you're getting a lot out of it. I do what I do because I care about creators like you. A lot. I've dedicated my career to helping creative professionals, entrepreneurs, and organizations move forward. I do it by hosting this program and I'm also proud to do it in my legal practice. If you're a creative professional looking for solutions-oriented legal services to help you further your goals, I'd love to help. My firm, RKPA, does contracts, commercial law, copyright, trademark, and more. Visit rkpalaw.com to learn more. That's rkpalaw.com. Ryan A. Corella, PA, Miami, Florida.
Streaming services for Break the Business provided by L.E.K. Entertainment. L.E.K. Entertainment is a full-service entertainment company offering everything from consultations to full-scale events and productions, including audio and video productions, voiceovers, staged theatrical productions, script and music development, and streaming services. For more information, visit lekentertainment.com. L.E.K. Entertainment wants to help you bring your story to life. Thanks for supporting Break the Business. If you have a question or topic that you want us to discuss, email us at breakthebusiness at gmail.com. You can follow the host, that's me, on Twitter at Ryan K-A-I-R, and you can follow the show at The BTB Podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the show on Twitch, YouTube, and Facebook, and on all major podcast platforms. And now, let's get back to the show. Welcome back to Break the Business, everybody. You can check us out on all major podcast platforms, all the live streaming platforms, and on Sirius XM 145. You can check us out on that platform Mondays at 6 p.m. Go Slam Radio. We are happy to be on that fun little platform. Ryan Corelli here, joined by my co-host, Katie Zaccardi. We are talking quite passionately about TikTok artists we love and the complete collapse of the music industry by way of copyright law. And we had, it's casual. Yeah, just, you know, you know normal Wednesday night convo. <laughs> And I'd like to bring somebody else into this conversation who I'm very excited to talk to. Let's go ahead and talk to our guest this week. She is an indie folk singer-songwriter based in New York by way of Colorado. Her new single, Roses, is available now, and she'll be playing the Rockwood Music Hall in New York next month. You can find out more about our guest work by visiting www.rubygreenberg.com. We are happy to welcome Ruby Greenberg on A Break the Business. Hello, Ruby. Hi, Ryan. Hi, Katie. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you too. I I hope that our uh, unusual amount of passion didn't scare you off, and that you're excited to be chatting with us because we're we're happy to have you here. Not at all. I was drawn in. I was I was really engaged and excited, so <laughs> I'm happy to be here. Thank you. <laughs> cool. Well, I, I want to see if I can get you engaged on another topic that is uh, of equal importance to me, perhaps even more important to me than copyright law, and that's breakfast food. <laughs> I have been told, Ruby. That you are unusually passionate about breakfast foods, which means you are just after my own heart. And I'd like for you to settle a discussion I've been having with many of my loved ones lately. Donuts, colon, are they a breakfast food? Yes or no? I say they are, but I, I want to turn to the expert on this. Wow. Well, first of all, I'm so excited that this is your first question. Like, really just starting off with the topics that are important. It's uh, what the people want. Yeah. Donuts are a breakfast food. Yes. I would call them that. They can also be used any time of the day, but yes, breakfast food. It's a versatile breakfast. Like it's it's a versatile food. It's good in all time zones. Uh -huh. I'm a firm believer in your stomach doesn't know what time it is. If there's a food that you enjoy regardless of the time of day, like mm -hmm. why not eat it if it makes you happy? I tend to think breakfast tastes better like sometime between like midnight and 4 a.m. I think is when <laughs> breakfast is really at its peak, especially when you've been up late. But yep. donuts, breakfast. And, and, and what do you think about this, Katie? Am I am I okay. off base? Because like I, I get a lot of detractors on this who are like, you can't eat a donut for breakfast. It's going to ruin your day. Uh, it's gross. Yeah. Listen, when I was in college, I started an informal club called Donut Club. So I... <laughs> I'm 
pro donut. <laughs> I'm serious. And the we used to go to I went to NYU, so we used to go just basically me and my friends go try to go to every donut shop in the city. I don't even think we hit every one. And we would go not necessarily at breakfast, which is why I agree with you wholeheartedly that it is a breakfast food and a great snack throughout the day. Um, but I've since gone gluten-free, and so it's been a lot harder to get donuts in general. But when I find a good one, I cherish it. Wait, I need to know more That's about amazing. Donut Club. <laughs> <laughs> because I went to NYU. Had I known that there was a donut club on campus, I wouldn't have wasted quite so much time at the school newspaper or moot court or something that wouldn't have nearly been as good of a use of my time as donut club. I would have put that on my resume. I would have ran for the executive board. I would be honored to be the treasurer of donut club. I don't even think we got to the point where we made it an official club. Like it was just like an underground club, but yeah, it was it was fun. It was it lasted like a few months, and then I mean, there's not there's not that many donut places in the city, so it was kind of short lived. But we had a, the time of our lives when it when it was happening. That's amazing. I was your neighbor over at the new school, like oh, not nice. not far, and so we went to the donut pub a lot. That yes, was like donut our pub spot. was really good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was I was a uh, I was a donut plant fan over in uh, over also in Chelsea, good. in the Lower East Side. Myself, a fabulous donut. What do you mean there isn't enough donut places in New York to sustain a year-round donut club? Like there were probably like four donut shops like within view of my eighth-floor apartment window. Like I could have I could have thrown a penny from my window and hit six donut shops. If you're <laughs> counting Dunkin' Donuts and like. Uh like a bodega then yeah <laughs> that's probably fair we don't sleep elite. on bodega donuts though like i've never had one so i'll have to try it next time i'm <laughs> i'm in town <laughs> uh, so ruby i've also read that you are a morning person and as you just heard from my discussion of liking to stay up late because breakfast tastes better from midnight to 4 a.m Getting up in the morning is just something that I just have a lot of trouble doing. I think there's a lot of musicians and creators out there that if they could become morning people, they could be so much more productive. Like, I think a lot of productivity happens at that time when everybody's still asleep so they can't harass you with phone calls. And I imagine that being a morning person has helped you creatively. How do you do it? Tell us your secrets. <laughs> um I totally agree. I mean, I live with four musicians and we always kind of joke that like at all times there's someone awake because they're like just going to sleep and I'm just waking up. It's probably an exaggeration, but. What time um, do you wake up? I, I like nine. Like that's like my sweet spot, like eight or nine. Um, and yeah, I just, I really like waking up early and I kind of like, like do it naturally now. But being a morning person isn't, and, and Ruby will be the first to attest to this. Being a morning person isn't just the time on the clock. It's the state of mind when you awaken. Because for me, whether I wake up at 5 a.m., 6 a.m., 11 a.m., I'm waking up the exact same way. Like, I am just unhappy to be here. You know, just like, my, you know, my face is haggard, my hair, I got massive bed head. And however long I've slept, I need another 30 minutes. And yeah. so, like... But I, I'm guessing like when Ruby wakes up in the morning, 
It's like when the beginning, the first five minutes of any Disney princess movie where she's <laughs> singing a song, little cartoon birds come out and like <laughs> bring her her dressing gown and they all sing together. That's what I'm envisioning when Ruby says, I'm a morning person. That's amazing. <laughs> I feel like you get me already. Um, but yeah, I totally agree that it's it's a mindset. It's just that like, I think I call myself a morning person, not because of the time I wake up, but because of how I feel when I wake up, which is, yeah, I, I love waking up and like the house is really quiet. And I think it's all about the routine that like the first thing I do is wake up and make coffee or tea. Usually it's coffee because I need more of the caffeine, but um, like making coffee and like opening the blinds, and the sun kind of comes in. And then the first thing that I try to do most days is journal. Um, and I feel like that has like really been so influenced, like influencing my writing practice um, because they, you know, there's a whole like writing program out there called the artist's way that teaches you to journal three pages every single morning and that that really opens up so much creativity. So I think I already was a morning person, but then started getting really into that. Um, and it's just, it's just solidified it. Oh, tell us more about this because the last few weeks we've had guests on the show who have sung the gospel of journaling as being an effective technique for songwriters. And like, when I think of journals, I think of like, you know, at the end of the day, you know, dear journal, you know, so-and-so made fun of me at school today or whatever, but you know, I see it. I I've heard of it more being an artistic tool as a way to capture thoughts as a way to, mm -hmm. you know, what you put in that journal eventually becomes a song later. Can you talk a little bit more about the journaling process and, and what it does for you? I, I think more artists could get into yeah. this. I mean, in my opinion, like there's multiple types of journaling. And so kind of what I'm describing of like just waking up and getting something on the page, that's almost like train of thought. And I think it could just be like, I feel really tired. I don't want to journal today. I wish I wasn't journaling. I need to go get groceries today. Like I need to do these things. And like you said, like this person said something to me yesterday and it, it felt weird or something like this. But just the act of writing it down actually is is really helpful because there's more, I think, than than we realize that just gets trapped in our head of things that we haven't processed or um, feelings that we might have, things like that. And so getting it onto the page is is really helpful. And it feels like almost a therapy once I'm quite used to it. Um, I think then that is separate from like the act of journaling as it relates to songwriting where if I'm like really trying to write a song, I might start with just free writing. And that might just, you know, that might be later in the day um, where I do start to sit down and really like maybe journal about a particular story or an emotion that, that felt really inspiring to me. And I might come back to that journal page later and, and circle some of the phrases that feel really uh, rhythmic or feel like they could um, be sort of the roots of a song. So I think that there's multiple ways you can use it, but but really like that early morning journaling um, from what I've been taught and, and in my experience, it can just kind of help you then uh, somehow without realizing it, be more open to those writing ideas later on. Yeah, it almost sounds like you use journaling not just to record thoughts, but almost to like get them out of your head so that your mind is clearer when you start the day. Right, It like it clears the junk out. So you can be like more receptive to right. uh, the ideas. I want to talk a little bit more about your background, Ruby, because I thought this was pretty interesting because you weren't always, if I had to attach a genre to you earlier in your life, it wasn't always indie folk. In fact, you went to jazz school. You were 
Uh, mm -hmm. You started out as a musician playing in jazz club for years. So what ultimately caused you to want to transition into more of an indie folk sound? Because I wouldn't think of those two genres as having like a smooth relationship transferring one to the other. What, what, what happened? Yeah. There? Well, it's um, funny because I almost started in folk just in terms of like the music that was playing in my house as I was growing up. So my parents were always playing like Joni Mitchell, Bonnie Raitt, um, you know, Neil Young, Paul Simon, James Taylor. And so I grew up on sort of these like folksy sounds, like very much acoustic guitar, very lyric based. Um, but then, as you mentioned, like I went to college and my degree is in jazz. And so all throughout that time, like I was learning basically the Great American Songbook, was learning as many tunes as I could. And like you mentioned, um, I was singing jazz like immediately after that. And so it was a lot of restaurant gigs, a lot of working like in bigger combos and things like that. Um, and it just never felt like as exciting as music like fully could be to me. And I think like just for me personally, like I still love listening to jazz and it's such an incredible art form. And the other thing I would say too, is like, it's an amazing way I think to learn music and to learn the language of music, to learn theory and to understand, um, you know, jazz is a great way to learn that. I just started writing my own songs and I, I really wasn't thinking about a certain genre. I didn't uh, intentionally pivot. It's just when I started writing, the folk is what came out. And I think that makes sense um, when you think about my background and upbringing and, and just the sounds that I was hearing as a kid. Well, any sort of transition like that for an artist to go from one genre to a very different genre, in a lot of ways, has to be an act of courage in in that you, you know, you, you've set yourself down a path and you've, you know, you committed to studying at the, you know, college level a particular genre and then you have to tell yourself that you know what you've done while it hasn't been a complete waste because you have been able to apply some of those lessons to your future you are going to abandon some of the stuff that you've already built to try something new and i would imagine that a lot of creators out there you know even if it's not jazz to indie folk are currently deliberating some kind of massive artistic transition for themselves and are maybe trying to find that courage do you have any advice for them? That's true. I think that makes sense. And the best thing that you can do is just follow that inner voice. Because ultimately, you know, if you're on a certain path, because it's the one you've already been on, or you've been on it for a while, or maybe it's what people expect of you, like, it's just not going to be as authentic. And that's what I started to realize was just, I didn't even think that I was really like reaching my full potential as, as a vocalist and as a singer, and it didn't feel right. Um, to me. And, and so that's why I wanted to start writing my own songs. And so I think the advice is just to really listen to that voice and that it's worth it in the end, because you're, you're following your own path. Katie, I imagine that this is a subject area that you broach a lot with your coaching clients. I'm sure that you get clients all the time who are on the precipice of having to make a big change, whether it's, you know, shifting from one genre to another or changing artistic paths, maybe adding a new creative element to their career. Uh, is a lot of what Ruby's saying there kind of resonating uh, with what you sort of tell your clients? Yeah, definitely. And I think that the advice that you gave is great. And, you know, a lot of people, especially when school is involved, this is what I've noticed from my clients. There's a lot that <laughs> is like rooted from that. And a lot of sometimes guilt or just like, mindset patterns that come when you are 
especially I've noticed when people go to classical, <laughs> not classical music school, but school for classical music or in like a um, conservatory or something like that. Like they do things in a very specific way. And so sometimes it can feel hard to break out of that, but you know, doing that is the best thing that you're ever going to do for yourself because you can then find what your true sound is and express yourself in a way that feels most authentic to you. Yeah. And I think like, I thought that these were expectations that were coming from other people, but they really weren't like, they didn't care. It was yeah. actually expectations <laughs> that I had of myself and, and pressure and assumptions of like, what will people think? But then I started doing that and, and friends were really supportive and they were like, yeah, of course, like, yeah, like do your thing. And, and so much of that is just the, the pressure that we're putting on ourselves. Yeah. And sometimes it's ingrained, or at least I know from my client's point of view, it was like ingrained from the school that they went to or from lessons or from parents or whatever it is. And I think it's amazing that you are, were able to acknowledge like, oh, this might've been ingrained, but it's also just me who's now putting the pressure on me. And you, you, you have the power to like relieve yourself of that and be like, okay, I actually don't have to do that. <laughs> I mean, it is, I guess in a lot of ways, it's very easy and it's very hard to make that transition because of that. Because on one hand, right, the only person like telling you, you can't do this is you. And so it should be easy to talk yourself out of it. But at the same time, that's also the closest person to you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so in that way, it can be very hard to make that shift. I mean, I'm no musician, but, you know, I did study business and in business, we talk about ideas of a sunk cost. Right. And so there are a lot of musicians out there who are saying who maybe want to make the big change and they don't do it because they are thinking of what they've already spent, whether it's time or money. I can't move into this new genre because I've already spent so much on my jazz school tuition and all these mm -hmm. jazz lessons and all these years that I would spend, um, you know, that I've, that I've spent studying jazz, like all that time is going to go to waste if I move into a new genre. And what Ruby's example says is twofold. One, it's not a waste. All a lot of the stuff that you've learned from that time is applicable into indie folk or whatever new genre you go into. It's a lot of the skills are transferable. And second, all of that time, even if they weren't transferable, all those times, all that resources, everything that you've done, it's a sunk cost. You have already expended those resources, whether you stay in jazz or whether you go into the genre that makes more sense for you. So you should go into the genre that makes more sense for you. And the, the, the cost that you've already sunk, it's an irrelevant consideration because you would have sunk it either way. Yeah, absolutely. And what I would add as well is that you, in my opinion, are the most successful if you're really going down a path that you believe fully in. And so if I was half-heartedly pursuing something else, I think it, it, it not only would it not be as authentic, but I, I wouldn't have the same grit and heart. I, if I don't believe in it, how can I sell it? And, and how can I expect other people to be excited about it either? And the creative journey is certainly hard enough when you're fully believing in yourself and what you're doing. I can't even imagine doing it if you're only uh, halfway into it. So that makes perfect sense. Mm -hmm. And in your case, that commitment and that embracing of who you are has really paid dividends because it is currently uh, producing a song that I have enjoyed very much, Roses, that you uh, put out recently. It's an absolute delight, as is uh, your, your catalog. Can you tell us a little bit about Roses and tell people where they can find it? Yeah, thank you so much. Um, Roses is actually one of the earliest songs that I wrote. 
um, when I first started, you know, putting together my own songs. And it, it has evolved a lot since I was performing it live. And it started out as kind of a piano ballad. Um, I was almost thinking of a sort of like Sarah Bareilles gravity moment, really like uh, thick piano chords and this and, and uh, <clears throat> performed it that way for a while. And finally, self-produced it um, as far as the arrangement and also worked with a couple of dear friends of mine um, who co-produced it with me as well and turned into a sort of, you know, acoustic guitar layers and, and very vocal heavy uh, harmonies. Um, so it's my latest single and, and really kind of as far as the story there goes to just supporting the people that are in our life. And, and it's funny that we've been talking about expectations so much this evening because that's a little bit what it's about and it's a different kind of context but it is about supporting someone else no matter what it is that they want to do and and not giving our own opinion so quickly but just saying yeah like, i'm there with you um, it's, and so yeah it's a great message in that song and of course like this is going to be like me like telling you what your song's about which is probably so obnoxious but you know it's 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 about embracing people but embracing them on their own terms embracing mm -hmm. them on their on kind of their home field um and it's you know just a, a lovely positive message it's a song that people are going to enjoy i encourage you all go to rubygreenberg.com and check out ruby's wonderful music ruby before we let you go this week one last question we'd like to throw your way that we ask all the folks that grace our program do you have any last tips for the indie creators out there to help them move their careers forward oh that's a great one I uh, am a firm believer in finding community, whether it just be a couple friends that you can make music with or, or whether something a little bit more elaborate. But what I've found to be so helpful in my own in my own journey with songwriting and music in general is sharing that with other musicians and friends um, and feeling like you're not alone in what you're putting out and what you're doing and maybe even making music with them. Ruby, this has been an absolute treat. Thank you so much for your time, for your music, and for your fierce advocacy for donuts. <laughs> Thanks so much, Ryan. Nice to meet you both. We'll see you next time. All right, Katie, what do you think? You got you had to have dug that, right? Oh, loved it. That was maybe one of my favorite interviews that we've done together. <laughs> that was fun. It, it was a treat. She was uh, super delightful, super engaging, loved her story. And that was one, honestly, like when I started the interview, I, I didn't know where we were going to go with it. And she was, I mean, she was just so much fun to talk to. And I feel like we could have taken that in so many directions. And those are my favorite kinds of guests. Really, yeah. really, really awesome. And the great guests keep on coming. I should note next week, our guest on the program, Robert Randolph, is going to be joining us. Super excited about that. Love his music. I, you know, I... Uh, the unclassified album, Robert Randolph and the Family Band is, you know, it's probably like a 15, 20 year old album now. Still gets regular rotation on any music player that I own. Excited to be chatting with him. He's doing a really cool campaign for Juneteenth and he's just somebody I really treasure. So this, I'm, I'm excited for that one next week. I can't wait to listen to it once it's out. Yes, indeed. Um, the other one that we got coming out, uh, a guest we're going to have in a few weeks is uh, Andrea Gleason, who's the CEO of TuneCore. And what she's going to be talking about there is a pretty cool promotion that uh, we actually want to talk about this earlier in the show, but we got so into yelling about uh, copyright law and that guy who was singing at the top of his lungs that we didn't get to the story, but it's actually a pretty cool one. 
TuneCore has announced, that's the, the distribution service, you can use TuneCore to put your music on Spotify and Apple Music and all that stuff and TikTok. TuneCore is announcing that they are going to shift instead of a, a model where you have to pay a certain amount to put an album up. And so you're, you know, so if you're an artist who makes a lot of music, that can get pretty expensive to put each album or each single up. TuneCore is going to shift to an unlimited flat rate model where you pay as low as $15 a year and you can upload as much music as you want to TuneCore and put it on all the streaming services. Now, if you're an artist who makes an album a year, that may not be a great deal for you, although, or rather a single year, if it's an album a year, it might actually work out pretty well. But if you're mm -hmm. one of these hyper creator artists that we're seeing more and more kind of in the era of TikTok that are making five, 10, 20 songs a year, if you're Jonathan Mann, the guy who made the Break the Business theme song that everybody's listening to, literally yeah. writes a new song every day, that model can really be a lot of value for creators. And the other cool thing about it is if you're just uploading to TikTok, you get free distribution on TuneCore. Gotta love oh, that. That's cool. Yeah. That's very interesting and possibly indicative of as to where the industry might be going. Absolutely right. It's the it is changing, right? As as creation of music becomes something that is so democratized, as you can you know, you don't need like a fancy recording studio to make a great work of art anymore. Yeah. And even if you want to make an album in a, a recording studio, you might create something on your computer that you just want to get out there and, and play for your fans and have them be able to download it. And if you're going to put out music that frequently, you would love to have a distribution model where you're not paying every time you want to upload something. If you're because if you're uploading 20, 30 tracks a year, that's going to get expensive. So what we're seeing is that the industry is shifting. I, you know, now that TuneCore is doing this, I think it's only a matter of time before CD Baby does this, before DistroKid does this. Yeah. And it's a, it's a cool development. And I love seeing that these distribution services have always been a friend to indie creators, continuing to meet indie creators where they are. It's a welcome development. Yeah. Yeah. Looking forward to that interview too, and hearing more about it. And definitely curious to see how the other distributors react to this and, and what they do moving forward. Well, it's such a copycat industry. I, I guarantee you, like within two months, we're going to yeah. be doing a show where, hey, CD Babies announced that they're <laughs> doing flat rate pricing. Uh, it's really, really cool either way. Love to see this kind, these kind of things happening to create value for creators. Our thanks to Ruby Greenberg and producer Lauren for doing uh, excellent for us. My thanks to you as always, Katie. This has been an absolute treat hanging out with you this week. It was a treat for me too, as always. <laughs> cool. And of course, last but not least, my thanks to all of the viewers and listeners for checking us out wherever you're checking us out. Thanks for listening and watching to Break the Business. We'll see you next week. Break.